Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, April 20th, 2012. This week, episode 244 comes to you from Studio C in beautiful McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. It's always fun, Joe, on Friday. I look forward to it. Yeah, Fridays are fun. A couple bagels and hang out with Val. Of course, at the controls is our engineer, Roxy V, Val Bender. Hello. All right. Joining us by phone. In in fact, today's guest will be Dr. Dietrich Wow, our technical director. So we're going to uh, do an interview today with Dieter. We're going to talk about the science of indoor air quality, indoor environmental quality, go over a little bit of the important concepts from the sciences that people doing this type of work should be familiar with and get them with the unique perspective of Dr. Wow. Before we get started, though, let's thank our marquee sponsors. Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing services for the restoration industry for fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing. Learn more about them at www.netclaimsnow.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, most people know to listen to the show, you just hit that button on your invitation or on the IAQ Radio website that says go to the show. You have two options then. You can either download the talk shoe uh, software or just go straight on. It's probably easier just to go straight on without downloading. And then, of course, we also have those shows available after each show. You can stream them from our homepage on the website or hit the Go To Show link and download them. Right-click on the Download button and save them to your favorite MP3 player. Of course, we also want to thank uh, the IAQ Training Institute for the training you trust. Check out the dates at iaqtraining.com. And we also want to remind people we have continuing education credits available for the American Board of Industrial Hygiene, the IICRC, and the ACAC. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. We'll get you out of quiz. All right, let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IEQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IEQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Email it to czlotnick at cs.com or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, you can text in your answer. Congratulations. <laughs> 
to Mike Bashford from Ontario, Canada, for being the first person to identify Nostradamus as the French apothecary who published collections of prophecies that have since become famous worldwide. The IEQ Radio Trivia question for Friday, April 20th, 2012, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restores and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Check out their new electronic membership category at their website, www.trsca.org. Now for this week's trivia question. Val, the envelope, please. What early scientist, after being forced to declare the Earth was motionless, muttered, nevertheless, it does move? Back to you, Joe. All right. Well, today's guest is also our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Dr. Wow is a certified industrial hygienist. His doctorate is in industrial hygiene and occupational health from the University of Pittsburgh, and he's had over 30 years, probably more like 35 years now, of experience conducting indoor air quality and industrial hygiene investigations. Dr. Wow is a professor, former professor from the University of Pittsburgh's Graduate School of Public Health and continues to work part-time, almost full-time, I would say, providing expert witness testimony and industrial hygiene and IEQ surveys and training with the IAQ Training Institute. He also started one of the first asbestos training courses while back at the university and has attended numerous indoor air quality training programs over the years to ensure he stays abreast of the latest developments in all indoor air quality issues. He joins us each week here on IAQ Radio as our technical director, and most of you know he doesn't hold back with his opinions. Let's see, if, do we have our intro music for Dieter? A brief magnificent history, 3,000 years of science discovery. Absolute zero cell replication, natural selection, evolution, genetics and inheritance, table of the elements, diffuse sky radiation, theory of electromagnetism, Crookes tube, cathode rays, Gibbs rules of chemical phase, statistical entropy, ether is imaginary, electrons and radiation, x-rays, Planck distribution. A brief magnificent history. Thousand years of science discovery. Three thousand years of science discovery. Hello, Doctor Wow. I know you haven't been around three thousand years, but you've been around a little bit. Good day, and welcome to IQ Radio. <laughs> Thousand nine hundred ninety nine. That's all. <laughs> Dieter, and that I, was not Beethoven. I don't know who that was, uh, but it was not Beethoven. No, it wasn't. But uh, you know, Cliff found that one, and uh, he wanted to make sure we got a little something different for you this week. That's it's always fun. That is that is great. Yes, Dieter. I you know, and I know listeners will know. I call you Dieter. We've worked together for years now. We've uh, traveled a lot together. You helped me with these training courses and. The last one we did, we did a section called The Science of Indoor Environmental Quality, and and you did a, a bang-up job, and I just thought, you know, let's put it on the radio, get it out there for people so they have a better understanding of, you know, what the science behind what we do is. And um, we started kind of with an introduction to the physical sciences and, and talked a little bit about the physical sciences and then went into some of the general principles of the physical sciences. Do you want to make a comment on just the general principles of the physical sciences first? Well, yeah, I mean, the physical sciences, it's, it's a very, very broad field, uh, you know, from biology to math to the toxicology, yeah, you name it. Uh, it's, it is a broad field, and I think that is what we are trying to, to, to figure out today, um, that you just can't go uh, out there with a one-day course, and I said, I'm an expert. 
and uh, there is there is a lot more to it than what meets the eye on day one. Now, we we broke it down a little further, and then with with the class, we talked about some of the basic principles of of physics and how they related to indoor environmental quality issues. And I have a long list of these, you know, what we did. Yeah, yeah, I have probably the same one over here. You know, we talk about the physical science. There is a new science, new in quotation marks, building science. Then the elements of airflow, very important. Mechanisms of moisture transfer, very important. Mechanisms of heat transfer, very important. And uh, there, there are a couple of other topics is, you know, how to take samples, when to take samples, what to do with the samples, how you have to calibrate, and all of those things which are really of importance if you want to do a good survey. Let's keep it at that, yes. Okay. And now let me go back to the physics for just a moment because we Wikipedia, we took some of this from Wikipedia. They kind of break it down, the sciences, into the physics uh, chemistry and earth science, and, and and when we went over this in class, I what was beautiful was I didn't have to give you anything. I just said, okay, here's a list of the of the categories of physics, and you just went on a roll. Uh, we we talked a little bit about describing and measuring motion and Newton's laws of motion and forces, weight, and mass. How do these kind of physics? science topics tie into indoor environmental quality issues? Well, they all are important. There is no doubt about it. Who would be, I don't even want to say perfect, you know me, I never say 100 and I never say zero. That's right, yep. Who would be an ideal uh, uh, indoor environmentalist? Well, a guy who is a medical doctor, he has a PhD in chemistry, a PhD in physics, a PhD in toxicology, a PhD in uh, uh, biostatistics, uh, PhD in epidemiology. Did I mention uh, engineering and chemistry? Exactly. (laughs) That is the problem we have over here. And I can't give, I, I don't know how many surveys I did in my lifetime, but I can't give somebody a one page uh, a do list and say, hey, if you do it this way, you are perfect. There is always something that is different, and I know you ran into that. We talked about that. You called me and I said, Dita, Dita, what the heck happened over here? And so on. So that is really, that is uh, the problem, not the problem, but that is the challenge which we have to meet when we are doing what we are doing. Cliff. Yeah, Dieter, I, I've got a question for you. Um, sure. I'm, I've never been good at math, and I suspect some other people aren't good at math. And if you're not good at math, does that mean that you can't be good at surveying buildings for indoor air quality problems? What role does math play? Well, you know, I, I, I don't think you have to have a Ph.D. in mathematics or theoretical mathematics, but... Um, Uh, There is something also called common sense, and you can look at systems, whether it's a ventilation system, whether it's a building system with the building envelope or uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, the indoor and outdoor uh, uh, problems. I don't think you have to be good at math. Uh, I'm pretty sure there are very good physicians out there uh, who didn't get an A-plus in math before they became a good surgeon. So it helps. Of course, it's that, like I said before, it helps if you have a degree in all of the above. Uh, that would be ideal. Of course, there is no such person. Of, of course not. But, you know, I, wear my, I know where my strength is, and I also know where my weaknesses are. And that's when I make phone calls. Well, so you don't have to be a math wizard to do what you're doing, but you've got to know the basics. And you got to know whom to call when you're in trouble. That helps a lot. That's a vital point, Dieter, and we, we pond on it over and over in the course that, you know, you need to know your limits, and then you need to know who to contact when you reach those limits. And normally, 
oftentimes these are multidisciplinary teams that that investigate indoor environmental quality issues. Uh, but somebody's got to have that strong science background. We, we'll typically have an engineer, some type, maybe a, an HVAC, you know, heating, ventilation, air conditioning type person that will will understand the the math component, uh, the engineering component of things. We'll have the building science people. Can you talk just for a moment about this whole issue of building science? You, you know, we mentioned that in the introduction as an important, somewhat new area. Uh, I know it's something that you have, you know, you go to the summer summer camps uh, with Joe Steebrook, et cetera. What are your thoughts on the whole building science, the evolution of this, this category of building science? Well, it certainly was the discipline that was needed. Why? Somebody built houses the wrong way in the wrong environment, and all of a sudden the house didn't perform the way they thought it would whether there was moisture in there, the ventilation problems, and so on. And uh, I like uh, Joe Seabrooks, and I kind of paraphrased him, um, but building science is a science. It's, it's, it's a branch of science uh, that was needed to cross the bridge from the architect to the engineering. The architect, you know, he takes care of, hopefully, takes care of the bricks and the roof and all of that. And the engineers, uh, they are the heating, ventilation, and air conditioning uh, uh, people who are obviously very much needed in designing a, a healthy home for a place in which uh, uh, people uh, are living. So I, I like Joe's uh, definition. Hey, it was a link we needed to communicate between the architect and the engineering. And I like that very much, yes. And I would add the third group, the contractors as well. You know, they, well of course, yes. We've got yes. to um, bring them in. They're the ones that have to build these beautiful designs that people put together that meet certain stresses and requirements that the engineers uh, establish. So. Yeah, the, if, the, if you have a good contract and you tell them I want it this way and you screwed it up, that's not the contractor's fault. That's right. <laughs> yeah. D- Dieter, I we, want to have a big window on the north side, and I said, "Boy, this is cold during the winter on this side <laughs> of the house." Yeah, I know that. But no, anyway, yes, it certainly it, it it is important to incorporate those guys too. Yes. Would you say that building science is rooted in failure? analysis yes i think it is and I, I i think that's how it all started where people were called joe was one of the grand great grandfathers of the new science they were called in and they said you are a building scientist what do you do and i said well i look at buildings and i try to figure out who screwed up and where the mistakes are and I give you advice on how to solve the problems. And now they've done a and great job. And apparently has done very well at that. Yes, and they're doing a lot with respect to trying to head off these problems before they start as well. I know they worked a lot with EPA on, on some of their Energy Star things, and they've got the Build America program, etc. Let me go back to... Yes, and, and Joe is giving also talks during meetings on exactly what you said. Hey, there are a couple of very basic rules. Uh, if you obey by them, you eliminate a heck of a lot of problems later on. Let me go back to physics for a moment, Dieter. Can you kind of give us your thoughts on what the key, you know, there, there's certain laws of physics, and, and can you maybe just touch on a few and, and how they tie into indoor environmental quality issues? Well, yeah, I mean... Yeah, there, there are uh, tons of, of tough topics uh, in, in, in the broad field of physics. In, in physics, I mean, we have uh, yeah, airflow measurements. The, the, the for air, uh, air, force, uh, air forces due to air movement, momentum changes, motion and energy questions, energy conservation, Conversion and transfer, all of this goes together. It goes even down to you know, kinetic molecular theory, uh, momentum and conservation of momentum. 
So there are a lot of physical laws with which we have to learn how to live and how to curtail them if we need to. Now, Dieter, you mentioned something that just kind of jogged my memory about another example you give when we talk about one of the problems we have in the United States is, you know, we're, we're not oftentimes familiar with dealing with the metric system. And we're not good with, you know, millimeters and micrometers and things of that nature. And you have a few good rules of thumb for people to help help them understand a little better, kind of picture what you know, uh, what a, a part per million or, or a millimeter, etc. is. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, unfortunately, and uh, I, I have never been able to figure it out why we didn't change uh, from the uh, old, actually ba- British-based system, uh, which has nothing to do with metrics. You know, we, we measure in grains rather than in grams, and we measure in inches and feet rather than in centimeters and meters. And we have a short ton, and there is another ton uh, uh, based on the metric system. The metric system is so much easier. It is just unbelievable. <laughs> and you shake your head, and I said, what? There were, there were uh, people who wanted to change it in the United States. In fact, when I worked for the Bayer Chemical Corporation years ago, we had a guy who we wanted to change over from the American British system to the metric system. Well, it didn't work. We still buy our gasoline in gallons, and we still measure our distances by miles and uh, inches and feet and uh, yards, um, which is stupid, but that's the way it is, and we can't do anything about it. So, but there are a couple of, 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 of things. When we talk about... Uh, uh, building sciences and environmental measuring, and that's really what, what I like uh, also, when you need a sampling pump and when you need a filter paper and you need to calibrate that, we are looking at particles. What particles are of interest to us? Well, to me, particles of interest to me, as far as health is concerned, are particles less than 10 micrometers in diameter, and I get to that in a, in a second. And that is for humans, not for rats and not for mice, for humans. A particle of 10 micrometers in diameter can easily be inhaled and deposited in the human lung. To give you just a, a human hair is approximately 100 micrometers in diameter. So something that is one-tenth of that, you need a microscope to look at it, to to look at it and to see it. So that is the first thing that we have to to, uh, uh, understand there, that whatever we are measuring really is something you really can't see. If there is a big particle that I inhale, it's deposited in my nose and it doesn't injure my lung. There is no problem with that. Uh, The other thing is, we are uh, talking in the building sciences and in, in, the, in uh, occupational and environmental health, we are talking about parts per million. If you look at the national ambient air quality standards, uh, we have sulfur dioxide and carbon monoxide and uh, nitrogen dioxide, and we measure those in parts per million. Now, the good question is, what is a part per million? And I have to quote, and I still like it, my old toxicology professor, Dr. Henry Smith, who unfortunately is not with us anymore, but I uh, enjoyed his company and a couple of martinis with him. And uh, it didn't stun my growth and it didn't shorten his life. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I said, if you talk about a part per million, yeah, we know a percent. Yeah, seven percent is the sales tax. Then some people even know what the mill is on the house. That is not one per hundred. That's one per thousand. And then it stops. One per ten thousand. One per hundred thousand. Who knows what that is? And now comes one part per million. One part per million is very easily defined two ways, and it's easy to remember. If you have sixteen gallons, 
16 gallons uh, of gin and you put one drop of vermouth in it and you stir it all up very nicely. Now you have obviously a very dry martini <laughs> and you have a scientific martini because it is a one part per million martini. No bartender knows that one, hopefully. <laughs> they don't have to. If you don't like alcohol, the 16 stays the same. If you have a distance of about 16 miles in Pittsburgh from my house to the airport in round numbers is about 16 miles. If I were to measure, if I were stupid enough to measure that distance from my house to the airport with plus and minus one inch, it's obviously, it's almost impossible to do. Plus and minus one inch, that is one part per million. So what am I saying? I say in 16 gallons are about a million drops, and in 16 miles are about a million inches. Give or take a handful. But that, I mean, it is an incredibly small quantity. And we are measuring today, people go into an environment and they measure the indoor air contaminants to a part per billion. They have no idea what to do with that number. They call me, say, Dieter, 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 I got this and this and this. What does it mean? I said, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I have never heard of that compound. I know nothing about it. I don't know whether it came from a banana peel or an orange or whatever. Yeah. So we got to watch that and uh, just think of a part per billion. Now you have a drop of something in a swimming pool. Uh, it is just unbelievable. But many of the, uh, uh, the chemicals or agents which we are measuring, uh, they, are, they are nasty to the human body in the parts per million range. Don't even talk about a percent. Yeah. 1% of carbon monoxide in air will kill you in about 10 minutes, probably a little bit less. So those are a couple of things where you need to know a little bit of math and uh, understand what we are trying to do. Now, Dieter, if you would, could you explain a little bit more about the, the parts per billion? I, I want to think what... Um... Oh, uh, the off-gassing from pressed wood for some reason. I'm, uh, formaldehyde. I believe there the are some guidelines well, in parts per fact, billion. Interestingly, uh, the research which was done to come up with a new threshold limit value uh, or a permissible exposure limit uh, was done at the University of Pittsburgh. One, one of our students did that in my department. When there was a department, it's not there anymore. Uh, we did measure formaldehyde uh, in the parts per million range, and we are still doing it. I think it's now 0.3 parts per million. So it was before it was a lot higher, and people had been complaining about it, and I said, hey, there's irritation. They didn't get cancer. They didn't keel over it. You didn't have to call the undertaker. But said, boy, in this environment... Even if it is allowable, this is lousy. And um, research was done, and they said, yep, we do agree with those people. It should be lowered. So and it was lowered. At, it was and at, it is now in the, I think it's 0. 0.3 parts per million. 0. 0.3 parts per million, which would be what in parts per billion? Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, we have to divide by another thousand. So okay. Point oh 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 three. I mean, it's it's it would be incredibly. Uh, 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 oh no, that well, or in parts per billion. Per billion, it yeah. would be three hundred. Okay, three hundred. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So three hundred parts per billion, or point three parts per million. Now, can you uh, before we go to halftime? I want you to give your on the radio description of what a part per billion looks like or, or what how people would understand how small a part per billion is. 
I, uh, in fact, just as I uh, as I was talking, I look at it, it is indeed 0.3 parts per million, or 300 parts per billion. <laughs> the quantity is so small; it's just unbelievable. It's literally look at a, a, a normal swimming pool, not an Olympic swimming pool, one swimming pool you have behind your house, or think of a tank truck that you see on the road. That thing is full of something. You put in one drop, you have a part per billion. Wow. It's just unbelievable. And we can measure that pretty darn accurately with our instruments it, today for certain things, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, it is to me, it is amazing that we can go down to those levels. It's unbelievable. Absolutely. Absolutely, Dieter. We've got to go to our halftime, and uh, you, of course, are used to this. We'll take a quick, uh, a quick break for our halftime, thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back with our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, on the science of indoor environmental quality. Thank you. Thanks to our association sponsors, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing services for the restoration industry for fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing. Learn more about them at www.netclaimsnow.com Indoor Environment Connections The newspaper for the IAQ industry Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com John Don Products Where restoration and abatement contractors shop Visit them at www.johndon.com Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleancleanfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, we're back with Dr. Dietrich Wild. Dieter, back for the second half. Um, what we'd like to do is Cliff wants to go into the, you know, we, we broke it down into physics, chemistry, and earth sciences. Cliff wanted to ask a question on chemistry. Yeah, Dieter, chemistry is a subject that also scares a lot of people. What are the most important things that someone serving, surveying the interior of buildings needs to know about chemistry? I don't really think you need to uh, know a lot about, you know, organic or inorganic chemistry uh, to look at it, but uh, you you ought to know a little bit about the chemical action of materials that you are uh, trying to measure or trying to evaluate, evaluate and doing it through measurement. Um, Yeah, for, for instance, carbon monoxide, everybody heard about it, and we know carbon monoxide kills and all of that. Um, now, you got to know about that. It has a chemical reaction with the red blood cell. That's it. 
it reacts with the red blood cell, and therefore that red blood, the red the blood cell, which is full of carbon monoxide, which is now called carboxyhemoglobin, it cannot transport oxygen anymore. So there is nothing wrong with the cell. There was a chemical reaction in your lung, in your capillary bed of the lung, when carbon monoxide was absorbed by the red blood cell. Uh, on the other hand, I, it's, it's good to know whether a, uh, a chemical has a corrosive action and so on. And that's really what we are interested in. Most of these agents which we are measuring, we have information on those. Why? Because they have been around for years, for decades, and people have studied them. And that information can be found in the literature today. One good source is uh, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, who are publishing, A, the uh, threshold limit values, and on top of it, just next, not next to the number, you have to buy that, is a documentation, which is invaluable. Uh, they have about 600 or thereabouts, maybe 650 chemicals. And when I run into one that I don't know a lot about, um, I'm going to uh, 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 consult the documentation of the ACGIH, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, and I see why somebody came up with a number. There are learned people, there are PhDs and MDs and industrial hygienists and plant managers who have experience with these materials, and they write it down. I said, this number, we came up with 50 parts per million because of the following reasons. That is excellent information. Many people don't know about it. They look only at the number. Oh, the number was 50, and I got 51, so there is something terribly wrong. No, there isn't anything terribly wrong. You just made a measurement that said, hey, you are at what is allowed, and maybe you should look into it on how to reduce that. You don't want it to get any higher. These numbers, of course, are for American workers, eight hours a day, 40 hours a week. Now, if you on one day get a little bit overexposed, again, you don't have to go to the emergency room, but you know there was something wrong. I said, why did it go? Maybe we need more ventilation. Dieter, can you tell us, we hear, we hear the term a lot, off-gassing. Can you tell the listeners what off-gassing means? Oh, oh, sure, certainly. Again, at the University of Pittsburgh, we worked with the, uh, the car I think it was called the Carpet Institute of the United States. And people uh, uh, put new carpeting, uh, and I get to the, the woods and so on also. People put in new carpeting, and particularly in the Pittsburgh area, when or uh, uh, when do you put in carpeting? Maybe in other areas, but the climate has something to do with it. All the family is coming over for Thanksgiving. We better clean up this place and we put a new carpet in. Or you'd put it in for Christmas. That's the wrong time to do that in Pittsburgh. Today would be a perfect time to do it. You put it down, you open the front door and the back door and a fan in it, and um, you get what the smell of new carpet you get out of there. What happened was there were chemicals used which are needed to bond the carpet fibers to the backing. And that, uh, it, it wasn't, how should I say that? It wasn't fully cured or not 100% chemically bound, and therefore some molecules of whatever was in there, got into the air. And that was that new smell. In fact, you have that one, that new smell in a car. There are chemicals. I mean, today your car is full of chemicals. You sit on polyurethane foam and all of these other good things that are in there. 
there is a new car smell that is off-gassing. Off-gassing can also come from wood products which are glued together with some kind of glues. In the old days, they used formaldehyde, urea formaldehyde, which was not a very stable uh, chemical. And with time and depending on the environmental conditions, temperature and humidity, uh, free formaldehyde was coming off that. That was an off-gassing from that. Now, there are other materials uh, where there is some off-gassing, chemicals which are used on clothing, uh, chemicals which are used to bond paper, so there are many sources uh, of gassing from paint, and uh, we learned that. And I said, hey, you know, maybe we use this type of paint, quote, a green paint, which doesn't have as much off-gassing as the one that we used 30 years ago. I'm all for it. And again, do it during the time when you can open a window. I don't think we will ever find that any one of these off-gasses are good for you and make you live a couple of years longer. I don't think we will find that. I get rid of them, and uh, that will be fine with me. Dieter, let me go back to um, just the basics of chemistry and the difference between organic and inorganic. I don't don't think you're saying that chemistry is not important. Um, It's very important. Obviously, it's very important, and we have to have a basic understanding of it. Let's start with a basic understanding of the difference between inorganic and organic chemistry. Can you just give us a brief overview on that? Sure. Organic chemistry uh, are compounds which have carbon in it, and a ton of chemicals are of organic uh, uh, origin or organic makeup. Uh, Carbon is, uh, is, is, is one of the elements that is readily available on the Earth, and it combines with it. Inorganic is something that does not have uh, carbon on it. Uh, organic chemicals, think of just about, and I can't even think of one that isn't, any solvent, any solvent that you can think of is organic. Anything that you are creating in a frying pan or uh, in your microwave uh, that comes off uh, uh, has carbon in it, that these are organic materials. Inorganic is uh, uh, sand. And, in fact, there are chemists working today on perhaps changing the overall view for a very good reason. Organic compounds, organic chem- chemicals, the base of it is crude oil. It's oil. There's a heck of a lot of carbon in that. And we know sooner or later we will be short of it or even run out. Well, since for the longest time crude oil was very inexpensive and readily available, chemists worked with that. There are chemists, and I know of research efforts uh, done by major chemical uh, companies and corporations in the world, They are looking at inorganic compounds. And I said, can we make a foam? Can we make a pillow out of something that isn't uh, carbon-based? So it's one of those things. We went into that direction and uh, never forgot about it. It's it's like uh, looking at cars. We had cars. We had internal combustion engines. Gasoline was cheap, and I say that in past tense. (laughs) Gasoline was uh, cheap, so why bother and find something else? Well, we said, well, maybe if we look at the research on on batteries and electronics and those things, they were ignored. We didn't even think about those because we didn't need to. But all of a sudden it comes and said, hey, guys, Maybe we missed the boat somewhere, so we are looking at that. So that that battle is going on right now, and I'm pretty sure a couple of bright chemists will come up with compounds which are not 
organic. They are inorganic compounds which will be uh, helping uh, uh, us to live a, a comfortable life. Dieter, now let me, let me clarify something or just ask you to clarify for me. And so the oil, because it, it's got a carbon, you know, it's a carbon compound, but it also came from living organisms. So would it be fair to say that organic is, you know, the chemistry, the living side of chemistry, the, the life side of chemistry, at least to some degree? Oh, absolutely. Now, now let absolutely, me, yes. Let me let me follow up on that because we oftentimes hear, and, and I know this is a pet peeve of Cliffs that you know chemicals are bad um, in some ways, and, and that you know use of chemicals is bad. And I, I'm not sure whether people kind of overgeneralize and they only consider the inorganic chemicals as chemicals, and they don't consider the organic uh, chemicals as chemicals. Would you comment on that? Uh, well, yeah, no, don't don't make that mistake. There are a couple, a, a bunch of inorganic uh, chemicals out there. They are uh, uh, highly toxic and uh, pretty nasty and difficult uh, uh, to handle. You mean organic or, or inorganic? Uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, or, the day you wake up, uh, yeah, you are, uh, the day you go to bed, you are exposed to, quote, chemicals. And uh, yeah, the oxygen is one chemical, nitrogen is one chemical, uh, and plus all the other little things that are in the breathing air. And then you go into the kitchen and you make a cup of coffee, and it smells like coffee. Hey, we associate the smell of coffee as a good thing. Well, that's a chemical in the air. So we are surrounded by chemicals. On the other hand, I'm the first one uh, to be against the misuse of chemicals, be it as pesticides, uh, be it in paints, uh, be it in, 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 in other materials that we, with which we have to live. Now, would it be fair to say it's not necessarily the chemical, but the potential for some sort of exposure to the chemical? Oh, certainly the exposure. If if you if I have a bottle of plutonium uh, in my house, which is pretty nasty stuff, <laughs> and I keep the lid on it and I don't inhale it, there is virtually nothing that is happening to me. So uh, the exposure is there and the route is there, and that has to be taken into account, yes. Okay, now the other, I had a comment that I want to make sure I get back to you, and that was when we were talking about solvents, um, the comment was that water is a is a universal solvent, not organic. I don't know if that that you meant to uh, discount that. I guess. Now there is no such thing as a universal uh, 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 solvent. Now, uh, water is a wonderful solvent for a lot of things, and it doesn't work on many things either. But uh, if you can, if you can, if the off-gassing from a paint is, quote, only water, which is not the case, by the way, I pre would prefer that one to a, they call them oil-based uh, paints, uh, which uh, will pollute my house for another four weeks until it finally is all gone and out the window. So I would prefer that one, particularly if the performance is similar, the same, or even better than that of another one. Now, let me ask another quick one. Well, go ahead. Do you have, did you want to finish? The performance is, of course, I mean, I don't, I don't want to paint the walls of uh, my kitchen uh, three times a, a year, you know, if I can do it with another compound. But uh, today we have uh, very, very, very good paints uh, available. And... Uh, uh, we, we have learned, and people have worked with them and come up with better products. Now, I want to get, we, we talked about um, organic compounds and off-gassing, and I want you just, if you would, we oftentimes in indoor environmental quality hear about volatile organic compounds. Can you just give me a little better description or, or, or definition for the word volatile and, and maybe kind of bring it down to the level that, you know, anybody sure. can understand. Sure. Volatile organic compounds, uh, there are two kinds. 
one which are made by the chemical industry, the other ones which are made by Mother Nature. They are volatile organic compounds. They are made by mushrooms, by bacteria, uh, by molds, mushrooms. And the other ones are made by Dow Chemical and DuPont and Bayer and uh, all the other guys. Uh, those are solvents. We need them uh, to live the lives to which we are accustomed, and uh, that is fine. Um, so uh, if you, if you want to think of a VOC, man-made, think of gasoline. Think of gasoline and um, a nail polish remover. Um, that is, yeah, those are, yeah, that's acetone going into the air, and the other ones are hydrocarbons, some kinds of, when you smell gasoline, that's what you smell over there. Any other solvent that I can think of will produce VOCs, volatile organic compounds, and they can be from virtually any source, uh, there are hundreds and pr probably thousands of sources from VOCs. All right, Dieter, I want to, the, the last way they had it broken down, they, they said there were some general principles of physical sciences, and I'm going back again. I, I, I use Wikipedia a lot because it uh, it's maybe not the, the best resource in the world, but it's free, and I can, I can publish this stuff and not have any problems with it. But... Uh, when we were talking about the basic principles of physics, they said that you know physics is the fundamental science because the other natural sciences, biology, chemistry, geology, etc., deal with systems that obey the laws of physics, um, the physical laws of matter, energy, and the forces of nature govern the interaction between your particles. Uh, such as molecules, atoms, or subatomic particles. And then they go into a little bit about the principles of physics. And, and earlier in the session, we talked about the mechanisms of heat transfer. And I, I've always had a difficult time kind of describing the mechanisms of, of heat transfer for people. Can you give us a, a concrete example of the difference between, you know, and, and tie it into physics, if, if, you, if you would, the conduction... Uh, versus uh, diffusion, or, or you know, and, and, and kind of go and convection. And convection, and then there's mass transfer. I guess would be a fourth. But could you give us a, a good, you know, visual sure. on that? Uh, the one thing is, uh, if you have a, and, and that that's the easiest way, hot water uh, heater in your house during the winter. That hot water heater gets warm, and it warms the air. That is one way to transfer heat from your furnace into the environment where you are living. The other one is you can throw some logs into your fireplace. And the interesting thing with the fireplace is actually you're not saving any uh, uh, energy whatsoever. You are throwing a lot of BTUs up the stack, that's for sure. Uh, it's unbelievable. But if you're sitting in front of fireplace... Well, your chest is wonderful, nice and warm, but your back is hot. That is radiant heat. We have radiant heaters. We know them in some of the fancier restaurants during the fall and winter. They have these uh, propane-fired, uh, they look almost like an umbrella, and they heat the area. That is radiation heat. The other one is convection heat. Yeah, I messed up, Dieter. I had uh, I I had confused um, my categories. Let me go. Let me go back through that. We had uh, convection, radiation, and uh, mass transfer were were the other types of heat transfer. Can you talk a little bit about convection? Well, convection is that part of the energy that is directly transmitted to the air before it hits your body and you feel you know, warm or cold. Whereas the radiation is, it only comes from one area and it basically, I mean, yeah, it, you feel comfortable in there, uh, but it is a different way of heat transfer. 
Okay, so let me let me get it one more time. Conduction, we, I think you went over the conduction. That's the transfer of energy between objects that are in physical contact. Okay, so the fire you talked about, you know, uh, convection was the transfer of energy between an object and its environment due to circular fluid motion. So, uh, yeah, the, a radiator is not a radiator; it's a convector. That's a great point. You know, I mean, we get these electric. Um, Strip heaters that people have in their homes or in buildings, etc. That's yeah. That that is that is uh, convection. Okay. And then radiation you described, and um, you know you you talked a little bit about radiation. The other sample example I've seen is when the the sun is coming through a window, for instance. Um, you, you could get radiant heat from that. And then the last one was mass transfer, which was described as the transfer of energy from one location to another as a side effect of physically moving an object containing that energy. Maybe an example would be... You could could do that, but then it will become uh, radiation and and convection again. If you you were to take a slab of hot iron, you know, and move it from one place to another, yeah, you're moving a heck of a lot of uh, BTUs there. But once it's over there, in that case, it would be both really radiation and convection. All right. Now... yeah, Dieter, let me, uh, let me. We're getting a little short on time, and I know you have a doctor's appointment, so I don't want to go too far. That's all right. Off the path. That's all right. Now, I, uh, I got a text uh, question. I have an hour to get there. Okay. But maybe the other thing, and I think that for indoor air measurements, what is important are measurements. How do we take measurements? How do we calibrate our equipment? What are we really doing when we are taking a sample? And that is the first step. The interpretation is another thing. But, yeah, when you are out there as a consultant and you have to take a sample, you've you got to do it right. And before we even take a sample, though, we have to determine why we're taking a sample, what we're going to do with the information we get if if we decide to even take a sample of some kind. So I've got a text question I want to kind of tie into that, Dieter. Uh, A listener wants you to talk a little bit more about a sick homeowner that is told about cleaning the air to reduce volatile organic compounds. And I'm going to – let me take a stab first, and that would be the first thing I think you would tell them is to try and find the source and remove the source. Now, if you can't do that, we're talking about cleaning the air can you can you talk a little bit about it? i know this is another favorite subject of yours uh filtration and, and the well, difference between you know particle filtration and vapor or organic uh, vapor he's in this case he's putting voc filtration in here yeah voc filtration you're in trouble uh, filters i know uh, mechanical filters particulate filters i know inside out my whole professional life i spent with this with the vocs I think you are absolutely right. Get rid of the source. That is the first step you have to do. Uh, why are they there? In my house, there are basically no VOCs. I'm sure when I watch an ice hockey game and I have a couple of beers, I, somebody can find a couple of molecules of alcohol in the air. And uh, yeah, I don't drink coffee anymore. And my, the, the, my carpet is 20 years old, so there's no more off-gassing. And there may be some VOCs coming from my printer or uh, when I'm making home fries or something like that. So to, to catch VOCs, if they are there, it's a heck of a lot cheaper to get rid of them than trying to catch them. You would need activated charcoal, and that uh, for a, a, a normal house is virtually impossible. I mean, it's not impossible. It's very cumbersome and expensive uh, to do that. Okay. Dieter, we're running low on time. I just I want to give Cliff a chance to jump in if he had anything to say. He finalize. just answered. I was going to ask him about adsorption, and he went ahead and talked about activated carbon and a question he anticipated and answered before asked. All right. Val? Very good. I want to see if Val has anything to add or ask. Yeah, Dieter, um, is there anything you would like to add? And thank you for joining us. And also, how can people contact you? Well, uh, it's very simple. My Internet is my last name, 
W-E-Y-E-L-1-1 at AOL.com. No commas, no slashes, backwards or forwards, no underline, no underscore or whatever. W-E-Y-E-L-1-1 at AOL.com. Uh, if somebody wants to get in touch with me anytime, that's easier to get me there than on my telephone because the inter- I go to my mail at AOL. That's first thing in the morning and the last thing at night. So that's a good, good place to get me. Somebody wants to call me, area code uh, is 412-279-3632. Unfortunately, I would have liked to talk today about uh, sampling because we all are doing sampling, and Joe said already, it's important. Why do you want to do it? When did you make the decision that you have to take samples? Well, I will be in two weeks. I will be with our friend Andy taking air samples, and I know why I'm taking those, and I know what the results are pretty much up front. And, uh, but I think that may be a whole new show to really go into the basics on calibration, interpretation, and uh, what to do with the data, how to look at it, and all of those. Dieter. I, I just want to pass along a couple of notes, people saying thanks, and it was an educational and informative show. And I just want to thank you. Uh, you know, you've, you've been so generous with your time, and, and I, I always enjoy having you on the show and listening to you talk and, and discussing these issues with us. And I know, you know, people don't realize, but, you know, Dieter gave his uh, email and our phone number. He, he answers calls all the time and, and takes emails all the time, and, he does it because he cares about helping people in the industry learn more and do a better job for those out there that, that need our services. So we just want to thank you both, Cliff and I, for joining us over the last five oh, years. No, no problem at all. That's the privilege of an old guy who has nothing better to do. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't go that and, far. Uh, who is retired and doesn't have a boss anymore. So. That is fine, and like uh, like you said, I mean, if somebody contacts me, they can do that. That is no problem at all. Anyway, if our friends in Germany, Finland, and Australia are listening, we have them all over the place, which is unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know whether we have, did we get any contact from China or Not Japan? that I've seen. That's a good one, though. I'll check on that. Uh... Yeah. But anyway, if our friends from there are there, hello, how are you doing? It's good morning, good afternoon, or good night, I guess. In Australia, no, wait a sec. Yeah, in Australia, it's good night. But anyway, it certainly is a pleasure. I'm always available, you know that. And I will talk to you, Joe, about maybe setting up a, a, a maybe with Larry and a couple of other people, maybe even with somebody from a, uh, a monitoring company and talk about the monitoring and how to take samples and how to calibrate and what to do with the samples and all the problems because there are a lot of problems with sampling. Well, you know, Dieter, it's also very commonly the big question from clients. Can you come sample my air? And... It's really hard to say no. I don't want to come sample your air. I'd rather come and do a, a proper investigation and then, if necessary, right. take some samples of your air. But it's really a, a huge issue, and I agree. Um, and I, I got a good good comment for you, Dieter. You mean the practice of industrial hygiene? So essentially, uh, we've got a you know that's basically what we're what we're talking about. Well, we, that, that's a good introduction for the next show. Great, great. Dieter, thanks again. Always a pleasure. Joe, you know, it's always a pleasure. You know I'm always available, and uh, I'm looking forward to work with you. You gave me the date, but in in a month or so, right? Uh, Two months. We'll be in Kansas City. For those that are interested, we will be in Kansas City doing the Indoor Environmentalist, and we have added a lot more industrial hygiene and building science to that course. While I've got the... Dieter's still willing to travel with me and, and teach people those things, uh, especially the industrial hygiene side. He loves it. Come on out and, and learn from the masters. So thanks again, Dieter. Fine with me. Thanks, 
thanks for your nice comment, uh, uh, Joe. And you know I'm looking forward to work with you, and we have been doing that. Let's put it this way. If it wouldn't have been any fun, I wouldn't have done it with you for the last, what is that now, eight years? <laughs> Absolutely. Something like that. No, no, we Peter, have you're looking. number 244. Yep, five years I here. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. It's un- I, it, it, to, feel, to me, it feels like show number 44. Well, five so, years here and 12 years on the road together, Dieter, so. My God, is that that long? <laughs> yes, sir. Well, it's all right. <laughs> it's been but great. Hey, great talking to you guys. Uh, always a pleasure. You know how to get in touch with me. And uh, whatever I know, I will uh, answer. And what I don't know, I will be the first one to say I don't know. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, okay. again. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to our technical director, Dr. Dietrich. Wow for joining us for the hour this week. And, of course, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. It's a great show, Joe. Check out the blog. Uh, He had a nice blog last week, by the way. Um, Dr. Scott did a great show. Of course, Val Bender, Roxy V at the controls. No glitches again. Nice job, Val. All right. And, of course, most importantly, our group of loyal listeners. Come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. I represent an entire generation. I hear the criticism loud and clear. That is how I know that the time is near. See, we become alive in the time of, and I ain't time to fear. It's upon me, but when you go hard, your nays become yays. Yankee Stadium with Jays and Kanye. has been another IAQ Radio production.